As you know, I am doing the sermon series on the Brook of Ruth. I chose to do this because even people at the front have said that Ruth, the Book of Ruth, is one of the most beautiful and captivating books in the Bible. Now, I know we can draw inspiration, guidance and direction from all the Old Testament books, but for me, and sounds like for others, the Book of Ruth seems to speak in a sweet, soft way like no other book in the Old Testament. So let's start by touching on some background. I guess one of the most important questions that you can ask in the background of a book is who was the author? Who wrote it? It is unsure who wrote this book. Jewish tradition says it was Samuel who wrote it, but no one is really sure. Well, I'm here to say I know 100% who wrote the book. I am sure. Who wrote the book? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit spoke through someone and wrote this book. Why do I say that? Because this book is a diamond among the many jewels in the treasuries of God's word. It's a splendid spiritual narrative that is a delicate love story. In the book of Ruth, we see a wonderful glimpse into the character of God in a special, precious and unique way, a way in which only the Holy Spirit can do. Another interesting point on the background of this book is the book of Ruth is also still very important to the Jewish people of today. This book is one of the five books or five scrolls that are read out during feast days. The Song of Solomons are read out from cover to cover at Passover. Ruth is read out at Pentecost. Lamentations on the ninth month of Av, Ecclesiastes during Tabernacle and Esther during Purim. It's an important book. It is one that the, that the Jewish people hold dearly and they read it out aloud every year at Pentecost as a celebration. Now, I know not many translations pick it up, but the correct Hebrew translation in the opening words of this book is this, and came to pass in the days when judged the judges. Now, most translations, as I said, don't write it this way because it's quite hard to put that in English. And also, why would you begin a book with the word and? I mean, for us to start a story or a book with the word and is a bit strange. If you were to read a book and the opening word in the book was and, you would naturally think that this book is a continuation from another book of the same story. And for all intents and purposes, that is the case of this word and. This same word and is used in the beginning of many books in the Old Testament. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Joshua, Judges, 1 and 2, Samuel 1, 2, Kings, Chronicles, Ezekiel, Esther, Ezra and Jonah. They all start with this word, and. Beginning a book this way is intended to show us or point to a course of action which has already began somewhere else. God is revealing and unfolding to us part of his wonderful plan. When you read this word and, you know it's a continuation. While each book may not be in logical, chronicle order for us, they are still woven together to reveal to us God's plan is if they were chronologically organised. Each book that starts with this word and reveals something of God's plan, pointing towards something. What is that something? Jesus Christ. Ruth is no different. 
the book of Ruth is a beautiful and majestic story given to ultimately show us the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's why it begins with the word and. Verse 1 tells us the events of Ruth took place in the time of the judges. This gives us a good chronological time frame for when this book is written. The time when the judges' rules began in Judges 3, when Othanel became judge after Joshua died. Then it continued all the way until the time they were replaced by kings. This is found in 1 Samuel, when Samuel, the last judge of Israel, anointed Saul to be the first king. So the time of the kings replaced the time of the judges. So it's somewhere between 1380 and 105 BC. Knowing that the author of Ruth said that these things came to pass in these days tells us a lot about the background of the cultural and religious setting of the day. It tells us what kind of world they were living in. The book of Judges tells us of this period of history. What is this period? It was a period of sin, idolatry, distress and poverty. All this came to pass because once God brought his children into the land of promise, God wanted to be their one and only ruler. God was to be their one and only ruler. But when you read the book of Judges, you see how quickly the people turn from God. God wanted to be their ruler and bless them, but they refused God's leadership, they rejected God's commands, they despised his principles, and they ignored his warnings. The book of Judges is the story of Israel at one of its lowest points in history. It's a record of division, cruelty, civil war, and national disgrace. The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. It was a period of distress due to God's hand of judgment. The anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. If someone ever asks you what's the theme of the book of Judges, I believe you can sum up the theme of the book of Judges and the time by pointing them to the last verse. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. C.I. Schofield says, Joshua is a book of victory. Judges is a book of defeat. Another thing we learn about the time from this one verse in the opening verses, Ruth, in the midst of this period of disobedience and corruption, it was also a period of poverty. We are told that there was a famine in the land that they lived in. How strange that there should be a famine in Bethlehem, which means house of bread. God, as I said, always promised the Israelites the law of blessing and fruitfulness as long as they were obedient. But he also promised the opposite when they weren't. It is at this time, in the time of Judges, they are experiencing the opposite. They are experiencing God's um, judgment on them because of their disobedience. Because of their disobedience, they had a lack of God's blessing and fruitfulness. They were in a famine. Famines in the Old Testament come in many ways. Sometimes they come about by unfavourable weather conditions or lack of rain. Some come about by civil wars where a nation fights against itself. Others, wars waged by foreigners. But what may surprise you is this. It didn't matter how a famine happened. 
None of them were unknown or undirected by God. Famines were directed by God. They were used by him throughout biblical history to affect his will in the unfolding story of his world. From the time of Abraham all the way to Joseph, the patriarchs were all affected by famines in ways that showed the realisation of God's purposes for their lives. Often in times of God's judgments, there would be a famine that served to get people's attention. It was given to help to remind them that they were not in control. It was given to help them understand all they needed to do at this time was to repent and submit to God's ways. That was the point of the famine. And this famine in Ruth 1 was no different. The fact that there is a famine shows that Israel as a whole is in a state of disobedience. So as you can see, Ruth is written in a time of moral and spiritual corruption, a time when Israel is suffering oppression, chaos, because people are not living and obeying the covenant that God had made with them once he moved them into the promised land. But nestled in this awful, violent period of human history is this beautiful love story a story of a lovely widow named Ruth and a godly man of character named Boaz. But before we get to them, let's see how it all began. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. This man that verse 2 tells us is Elimelech went from Bethlehem to the land of Judah. The reason it came from Bethlehem, the land of Judah. The reason including that is because there's another Bethlehem mentioned in the Old Testament. And so the writer is saying this Bethlehem is the very Bethlehem that Jesus would be born in some thousand years later. Now, we don't know what kind of Jew Emiliac was, as in was he a man who obeyed God? Was he still obeying and following God? We're not told that. But we do know this, he was caught up in a place that wasn't obeying and following God. And sadly, sometimes the godly suffer because the ungodly, even in Bethlehem. Even the names of his sons reflect the situations of the time he was living in. The names of his sons are Malin and Chilion. These names reflect the state of affairs. I can't believe he named his children these. Malian literally means man of weakness or sicky. Chilean means wasting away. What parent would choose to give names like that is unknown. But I guess it shows what kind of world he was living in. As I just said, most times the correct response when your country is facing a famine would be, guys, let's pray, let's repent and let's ask God to send us his blessing once again. But we're told this one man, a man from Bethlehem, left the land and went to dwell in another country. To dwell means to not move permanently, but simply to go there temporarily. So Elimelech's plan was this. In order to be free from the famine and escape escape the consequences that Israel was facing, he chose to leave the land of his God and take his wife and two sons and move into the land of Moab for a period of time. Now, you may think, big deal. I mean, who in this situation wouldn't look around them and think, man, what's going on here? This is bad. I'm getting my family out of here. What husband and father wouldn't want to get out there, out of there and begin to provide for his wife and family in a whole new way? 
So what's wrong with the decision for him to get up and move 50 miles into the neighbouring land? Well, it's this. He went to Moab. Moab was located just across the Jordan, east of the Promised Land. As I said, it's only 50 miles. But it was inhabited by people who worshipped pagan gods. The Moabites were the descendants of Lot from his shameful act of drunken incest and deceit with his firstborn daughter. They were the Jews' enemies. This is because of the way they treated Israel during their pilgrim journey. During the time of Judges, Moab had invaded Israel and ruled over the people for 18 years. The Moabites were a proud people and a group who God disdained. In fact, Psalm 60, God's spoken from his sanctuary, says this, Moab is my washpot. Do you know what a washpot is? When an enemy is taking control of another land, the captives would have to wash the feet of the soldiers who captured them and conquered them. And you guessed it, they washed their feet in a washpot. To be called a washpot was a picture of humiliated nation washing the feet of conquering soldiers. But David, who wrote this psalm, states that's how God saw these people from Moab. They were his washpot. Theologian Mark Deva calls the Moabites a terrible people. He states that they had sent Balaam to prophesy destruction upon Israel when Israel was preparing to enter the promised land. And they were the first ones to deduce the sons of Israel into worshipping false gods. Even though there was a famine in this land of Bethlehem, know this, Eliminac should have stayed. He should not have done what he did. He and his family were in the place that God had designed for them and his family. I did the welcome to church last week. And I said, if you are here in church, get this, you are wise and you are intelligent. Why do they say that? Because when we come to church, we are putting ourselves in situations where the Bible is proclaimed, where we can freely talk about our Lord, where we can sing praises to him. We come into a place where God is our number one. That's what you get when you come to church. Well, for me, this was the very place Eliminac was living in. We must remember at this time Israel was living in the land that God had gave them a part of his covenant. It was called the promised land for a reason. In Bethlehem, Judah, he could worship at the temple. He could present his offerings to the Lord. He could keep the feasts that were commanded by the law. But this man, Eliminac, which ironically means my God is king, by going 50 miles into the neighbouring land of Moab, he and his family were totally isolating from everything related to God. Eliminac and his family abandoned God's land and God's people and moved 50 miles to the enemy. They weren't just abandoning them, they were transferring his passport. They weren't just transferring God's land and his people for the land and the people of Moab. He was transferring God's land and his people for the land and people of their enemies. So why would Eliminac do that? Why would he turn to them for help? Because he was walking by sight and not by faith. He did not take time to think about all that he was leaving behind. Eliminac took his family away from the things of the Lord and brought them into the midst of wickedness and evil. Eliminac intended to move there, wait for the famine to end and then head back to Bethlehem. 
Sadly, those his plans of a short stay in Moab didn't eventuate. Verse 2 says they continued there. This word continued in verse 2 literally means to exist or to become. How sad is that? Verse 2 tells us Eliminax's family became like the Moabites. Charles Spurgeon comments on this verse. That's generally what happens. Those who go into the country of Moab continue there. If Christians go away from their separated life, they are very apt to continue in that condition. It may be easy to say, I will step aside from the Christian path for just a while, but it is not so easy to say, I will return to it. Warren Worsby says of this verse, sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. That's why I told of this sermon, The Cost of Moving. We see in these verses the cost that Eliminac paid for moving 50 miles down the road. How true is it for him? Even though Moab was only a short-term plan for him to escape the famine, in the very next verse we see the cost of moving. We find that his attempt to escape was unsuccessful. The writer tells us he dies. Time passes quickly and before we realise that we've jumped 10 years. In approximately 10 years of living, no more than a few verses are given to show us the life events of this family. Only the details that are important are given. And the story moves from elect and starts to focus on Naomi. After Naomi suffers this terrible loss of her husband, she's left behind as a widow to lead her two sons through their stay. But with no husband and they have no father. How hard is that for this woman? Well, thankfully, some good news comes for Naomi. Verse 4 tells us that her two sons get married. Chilean marries Opar. The name Opar is a Moabite name, not a Hebrew name. It means the back of neck or the mane. Her name will find its full meaning in the actions later in this book. Malan married Ruth. The name Ruth has two general meanings. It means friend, compassion, or beauty, or looker. Jews were forbidden to marry Gentile women, especially those from Ammon and Moab. That's because it was the Moabite women in Moses' day that seduced the Jewish men into immorality and idolatry. Numbers 25 tells us a result of this, 24,000 people died. But as I said, it didn't really matter at this stage to Naomi because they were more like the Moabites than they were the Israelites. So these marriages would have brought her great joy and happiness. She would have dreamed of seeing grandchildren and the continuation of her family name. But very quickly we're told this dream ends in tragedy as well. Verse 5 tells us that after 10 years of marriage and no children, both her sons die as well. The narrator is careful to explain that now Naomi has been left without. She's a widow. She was now without her husband and she was now without her two sons. She was an old and isolated widow. The worst fate imaginable for a woman in this first century period. There, with her daughters-in-laws, they now have to wait for their own departure out of Moab. 
Amaliak and his family had fled Judah to escape death. But three men met death just the same. At the end of this decade of disobedience, all that remained were three lonely widows and three Jewish graves in a heathen land. Everything was gone. No wonder one commentator came up with this title for these five verses. This is about a family who exchanges one famine for three funerals. Wow. Now, I'm sure you've worked out by now, whenever I preach, I try to answer one simple question. What question? So what? I mean, if I was to leave the sermon here and if I was to get off this stage, all you would be left with would be a good history lesson. And then if you saw someone this week and they asked you, what did you learn about the sermon this week? You could say, oh, we learned about a family who exchanged one famine for three funerals. Big deal. What is the so what of these verses? Why are these verses in our scriptures? What can we draw or take away or identify with from these five verses? Now, I know most times this is a personal thing. I find it staggering how God speaks and reveals different things to people, even from the same sermon or from the same passage of scripture. And maybe as you sit there, you already know the so what for you. Maybe as you've been listening today, you've already identified with something or someone within this story. Maybe some of you identify or draw comparison today with the time that I talked about this book was written. Those things that we said were happening in the time of Judges. Do you know, I know some Christians have made the comment to me, gee, Garth, I'm happy I was not living in those times. Where others have said to me, Garth, spiritually speaking, we are living and experiencing today the same things that people lived and experienced in the book of Judges. Maybe you're like that. Maybe you're sitting here and listening to this and thinking, don't today we experience national and international resentment of God? As we look around our society today, isn't it possible to see moral decay and difficulties of every kind? Isn't it easy to see people just doing what they want to do? Because of this, like the Israelites in the past, some of God's modern day people are living in unbelief and dis disobedience. They're not enjoying the blessings of God. So maybe you identify with the time. Or maybe some of you straight away identify with Eliminac and his life is the so what for you. Perhaps it's not hard for you to imagine what he was feeling or going through. Maybe you're in the midst of a time now when you look around and everything feels hopeless. Maybe you're looking around and thinking, man, what's going on here? And because of this, you are living in fear or depression and you're not sure how things can possibly turn around and all you want to do is escape. Well, others say, nah, these verses for me, it is Naomi. Perhaps you identify with her. Perhaps you've suffered great loss as well. Or like Naomi, you find yourself in isolation and empty. Do you know, I want to start and say, if you identify with any of these, great. Continue to ask God to reveal more to you what he wants from you in regards to these areas. What does he want you to do in regards to the time or the testimony of Elimelech and Naomi? And you know, for me, that's the very question, the very one question of the so what for today. As you read or study these five verses, if you go home and re-listen to this sermon, if you go home and open up your Bibles again, if you go and listen to someone else, 
Whether you identify with the tough times of these verses, the despair of Elimelech, or the emptiness of Naomi, whichever you identify with, ask yourself this. What does God want you to do about it? That's for me, is the so what. And you know what? There's great news. The answer to that question is one of the main themes portrayed all throughout the book of Ruth. The major theme or so what of the book of Rupert is this, the importance of living by faith. I believe Emiliac missed out on the blessings of God and ended up losing everything because he lived by sight and not by faith. What about us today? Do you believe as Christians today we can miss out on the blessings of God our Father by our actions? I know some people say to me, we can't. We can't look at what happened to Elimelech and his family and his two sons and say that can happen to us. That happened with the God of the Old Testament, they tell me. We have the God of the New Testament now and the punishment is gone for us. While it's true, I do believe Elimelech was under a different covenant than we are today because of our Lord Jesus Christ. While it's true, I do believe all our sins have been paid for once and for all, on the cross, and our punishment is gone. I also believe the God of the Old Testament is still the same as the God of the New Testament. Sadly, some people have painted a picture of this New Testament God of a big father-daddy type of figure, Father Christmas type of figure in the sky. And all he wants to do is just throw out presents. Regardless of what we do or how we live, he just wants to throw out his gifts and his blessings. I'm not sure about you, but I don't see that type of God in the New Testament. I still see in the New Testament a God who wants his children to know him, to trust him, to follow him and obey him. He still wants his children to walk with him by faith. What does that mean? How do you walk by faith? It means committing yourself to the Lord and relying wholly on him to meet the need. To walk by faith Faith means in spite of what you see going on around you, in spite of how you feel inside you, or in spite of what may be happening, you can claim the promises of God and obey the word of God and keep going. When we live by faith, it glorifies God, witnesses to a lost world and builds Christian character into our lives. These first five verses are a bit of background to this beautiful book. In this sad section, there is a death, two marriages and two more deaths. They soberly remind us of the dangers of leaving God's will, dwelling with the ungodly and becoming worldly. But as we continue to study this book, you're going to see that regardless of how bitter things may look or feel, God is in control. And more than that, he loves you deeply. He has a plan for you. More than that, the book of Ruth reveals he has a plan that is good and right. When you submit to his ways, when you keep the faith, when you live according to his plan, even when it looks as though the world around you is falling apart and all you want to do is pack up your bags and your family and go, you will find life is still truly life you will find meaning and purpose, your emptiness will be replaced with fullness. Because as we will see, we can either accept, believe and live by faith in the saving works of Jesus Christ or we can reject it.
I want to invite you as we study this book to take a risk. In spite of your fears or hesitations or concerns, will you choose to trust God's method of transforming your life? Do you know, whenever you do this, it can be scary. I don't know what God is going to ask of you when you truly seek him out and say, I want to live more by faith. I don't know what he's going to ask you to give up or to change to help you trust him and live by faith. God's ways are not our ways, and living my faith may seem scary, but when your goal is to live for God, you can only live one way, by faith. Would you respond today in faith? Will you surrender to God's purpose of growth and transformation for your life? I promise that if you do, your faith will become more real and more alive than you've ever experienced or believed possible. So this morning, if you identify with the tough times of these verses, if you think that we are living in a world that is just so corrupt and so everyone's doing their own thing, or if you focus or identify with a limonac and despair, if your life is there and all you want to do is pack up and run, or if you feel like a Naomi and everything is empty and you think, what on earth can God do now? Take heart. This story given to us ultimately shows us the person and work of Jesus Christ. The major theme or so what of the book of Ruth is the importance of living by faith, the importance of accepting the love, gifts, security and marriage to God, our Father, that he offers us through Jesus Christ. When you know Jesus Christ as your Saviour and as your Lord, the book of Ruth shows us that in spite of the alarms in the headlines and the dangers on our street, you too are part of a beautiful love story. That's what I hope to get through as we go through this book. How about we pray? Father God in heaven, I thank you. Um, this book um, in the book of Ruth touches so many people. And Father, I thank you for the testimony of this book and how it reveals to us your son and what your son's done for us. I thank you for these five verses. They are just a tragedy upon tragedy. But Father, so often in life, we can look at our lives and think we're just going through tragedy after tragedy. Father, I pray that as we open this book together as individuals in a church, you will grow us, you'll change us, and you'll help us to reach out with the same message. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that we too can come before your word and know you more and have our lives changed and blessed. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. I'd just like to say, if you would like prayer today, if you identify of any of this, if you are struggling in any way, or even if you're not, just come and if you just want us to share some praises with you, please feel free to come down the front and someone will come and pray with you. It's the best thing you can do. Don't escape out the doors. Turn around and come.